0: All right, partner. Episode two of the App Gene Thesis. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, this should be a great one. We're talking to Sam Hart and Zaki Manian today, and we're going to be talking about kind of this idea of uh, fat apps. And for li- for listeners, a you know an important analogy or framework that we draw on in this episode is uh, this idea of aggregation theory, which was originally pioneered by. Ben Thompson, and just to give you an overview, you know, aggregation theory is kind of a framework for how to understand, you know, a very successful kind of aggregator business model that's appeared in Web 2. So you can kind of think of it as those famous two-sided marketplaces that everyone sort of uh, knows and loves and uses—the Ubers, uh, the Airbnbs, but also even the Googles and the Facebooks, where an enormous amount of value has been captured by. Aggregating sort of consumer demand um, around like a specific uh, supply of, of something that looks commoditized. So, I think that using that analogy is it's not super perfect for for Web three, but it was interesting, you know, to hear Zachy's and and Sam's thoughts on where it applied versus where it didn't. And ultimately, I think it was a good way to reform, you know, sort of supply driven investment arguments that get made in crypto a lot over like demand driven investment uh, sort of rationales. And you know, that's what we're very focused on. in in this episode
1: i think we'll we'll get into this in the app but a lot of these protocols are marketplaces um both l1s that are you know a marketplace for block space with applications um as well as the application layer which is you know often a marketplace for say you know, liquidity with traders um and just you know kind of teasing out where this is going based off of what we see in web 2 and the aggregator side um and and maybe you know to think about how, the benefits of getting closer to the user to have more control over the demand side um, is a big, you know, tailwind behind this whole application-specific uh, thesis. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to dig into it.
0: All right, uh, without any further ado, let's just let's hop right into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, I'm joined by my co-host Miles O'Neill, and we've got Zachy Manian and Sam Hart on the episode. So, fellas, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay. Yeah, guys. Thanks very much. Uh, so we owe a special debt of gratitude to both Zaki and Sam who gave their thoughts on this season. So guys, thanks so much for uh, not only appearing today, but also helping to uh, steer us hopefully in the right direction for the trajectory of the show. Um, you know, today we really want to get into this idea of like really explore kind of fat apps uh, versus fat, uh, fat protocols and really try to examine uh, this idea that value may accrue to the app chain layer, which is closer to sort of consumer uh, you know, sort of consumers that are actually interacting with with blockchain. So um, Sunny was getting into this at the tail end of uh, at the first episode that that went live uh, last week. But guys, if I had to turn it over to either of the two of you, just from sort of a high level to begin with, and then we can drill down, um, you know, if I asked you to make sort of the case that value will accrue to sort of the app chain layer as opposed to the, the fat protocol layer... Um, Do you want to, you want to take up the mantle for that argument? So like
2: I view app chains as a way of enabling sort of product market fit across blockchain technology as a whole. Uh, and so what the version of that world that sort of exists, uh, in my imagination and it's slow, I think slowly starting to be validated, uh, by the market is that as you get increased conviction in entrepreneurs about what the market wants what is needed what what they want to build um you want to be able to like sort of vertically integrate that whole experience right uh, uh, mm. and usually you know if you're uh building something on a blockchain you're building some sort of two-sided marketplace uh where there's a user base and there's a uh and there's a sort of a supply chain uh or uh providers on that on that space whether it's like you know, you're, you're bringing together NFT creators or users or DeFi uh, investors and strategists on SOM. Um, you have this two-sided marketplace. You want to be able to optimize the value flow uh, between all of the parties. Um, and one of the things that is complex about L1s is actually, in many ways, there are a bunch of established uh, value flows in the l one Um, that you have to contend with, whether it's, you know, uh, the like MEV searchers, or the or the or block producers or miners or all of these things, who are uh, not really uh, aligned with your particular application, and who you can't necessarily harness uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, as part of the creation of this two sided marketplace. And so, what I am, what we, you know, what I think is going to be the design patterns that will succeed success, um, is applications that um, uh, do this. Now, one other thing I will say, though, is I think if, like, for instance, if you look at the evolution of the Ethereum ecosystem, you can start you can start your ecosystem as a fat protocol oriented ecosystem, and then application, and then like. Things can be built on top of that fat protocol that start to align it better with the application-specific thesis. Um, and like I would say, both like the emergence of like Eigenlayer and the OP stack uh, have been aligning the Ethereum ecosystem a lot better with the with the uh, application-specific blockchain thesis uh, uh, in a way that was like organic but somewhat expected
0: so, so I think that, um, that, you know, to maybe sum up what you guys said, there are a couple different angles there, which is one, there's sort of the the entrepreneur angle, right? Which is that eventually, you know, entrepreneurs are going to want more control basically over the full stack that they're building on. So app chains have a natural sort of advantage there. Zach, you were starting to, you know, your description of app chains sort of a two-sided marketplace is one that I think is very important. Uh, can you elaborate exactly on what that means? Because I think there are some, I have a bunch of questions or analogies that we could draw there to how that played out in Web 2. And I want to get your thoughts on whether or not you see the same dynamics being prevalent for uh, what we're talking about here.
2: Yeah. I mean, most applications inside of blockchains, whether or not they present themselves this way, have this sort of two-sided marketplace characteristic, right? You know, and the classic Web two two sided marketplaces are Uber or Airbnb. Uber's you know matching a pool of drivers with a pool of of writers. Of Airbnb, a pool of hosts with a And so you know we you saw, you know a, a sort of cycle. There was definitely a hype cycle of this in general. Um, but in general, you know you have you have the classic. You know, even you know your your DeFi apps are just you know, we you know the whole uh, peer to pool sort of thing. Like what this is like, you know, the DeFi summer innovation, uh, which was that you could have these smart contracts that can pool resources and then act as efficient coordination mechanisms between uh, you know, essentially makers and takers in a in a in a in a market in a, a like you know a trading application so you you know so you're uh so like you could have uh the taker side essentially filled by this like l p pool um and then makers on you know who want to buy and sell being able to draw from that liquidity or you know people being able to aggregate their funds in like a lending protocol, and then you know people on demand being able to pull and borrow from that you know sometimes for you know in a flash loan for one block uh you know these are all these are all essentially uh the great successes of cryptocurrency have been the creation of these extreme, so the problem of Uber, right? The problem of Airbnb is it's not a neutral marketplace, right? Is, 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 you know, they are both rent seeking on top of that. And the dream of cryptocurrencies is basically to create these like extremely neutral platforms by which you are able to, you know, match you know, the two sides of the market.
3: Adding on to that a little bit, uh, the analogy, like, one of the reasons that that uber works is because it makes the supply of drivers like more uniform for the um for the ride buyer and it's kind of exactly what what's happening to lps it it kind of gives them a uniform strategy so it it's a much kind of easier interface for a trader to interact with
0: so this is kind of a good um you know a good place to introduce because in in those dynamics right for Uh, for Web2, right? So we're talking about the classic platforms of of Web2, right? Like the Ubers or the Airbnbs. Even before that, you had kind of like the Facebooks and the Googles uh, as some of the best sort of aggregator businesses uh, of all time. This is where, you know, I think it would be cool to kind of layer this idea of aggregation theory, which is, this is Ben Thompson of Strategies thing. He wrote a blog post in 2015 that initially gained a lot of traction and has sort of since blossomed into this whole way of describing uh, it's kind of a framework for describing these these very successful businesses in the internet era, and most of them are these sort of marketplace businesses. And we can get into the the exact definition of how he defines an aggregator, but essentially it's these businesses that we're talking about. And really, the the key distinction I think that he that he makes is that in the internet, you can if you're looking at sort of a supply chain, you know, where that has like kind of production and supply over here, and then demand over here. The best businesses in the Web 2 internet era actually optimize for owning demand right that's what these aggregators sort of did so do you broadly so it's interesting Zachy, to hear you kind of describe uh, some of the most successful protocols in crypto is actually having a similar dynamic how appropriate do you think that lens is to apply to crypto where does like optimizing for taking demand kind of work in a crypto paradigm versus where does the analogy sort of start to break down
2: uh from web to in a, in a crypto world from my point of view I think this has basically been the, que- this has been the question, right? Is the aggregation of demand at an L1 layer or not? Um, and I think that, like, for what, like, there you are. Okay, so you do see aggregation of demand at L1 layers. I mean, I think there's just, like, no doubt that, like, there is an aggregation of demand that there you know, that, like, networks of, like, telegram channels and communities um, form around, uh, like, L1 and L1-like objects. Like, so, like, you know, like, Arbitrum right now is, like, where the DeFi cool kids are all hanging out, and there is an aggregation of demand that is occurring around Arbitrum, and it, like, um, and, you know, that and there's an aggregation of demand that happened around Ethereum, and there has been an aggregation of demand around BNB chain. Um, so, you know, you do... Um, you do perceive that that aggregation of demand does occur. The question that like the, or like the skepticism around the fat protocol thesis from my point of view has been that that aggregation of demand, I believe is like largely temporary and transitory and not particularly sticky. And you've seen the aggregation of demand kind of flit from L1 to L1 over the last like three cycles um, and and you know generally nothing sticks. Um, what has been sticky is like people use OpenSea and Uniswap, and they use it across multiple multiple chains. Uh, and our like the core of the like belief of this is that the actual aggregation of demand from the end user point of view is not going to be like oh like. Cause like, like let's be honest. With blockchains, are critical infrastructure and ubiquitous. It's the user base is not going to be like, oh, we hang out in like this Discord or this Telegram group, and like we just we like oh, like that's not our user base, right? That's not our long term user base. Our long term user base is like barely aware that there's a blockchain involved, and are just like, this is a marketplace where I can buy the things I want to buy or and use the stuff that I want. Like, I need compute. I need. Uh, Uh, you know, I need an AI model. I need something to be rendered, like whatever. Like I, I, they're just, you know, using, using computing for the services that it provides and blockchains are part of the infrastructure. So in that work, you know, I need to send money to my friend. Like they're like, all, uh, you know, these are the different things I need to hedge my Forex risk, like all of the, like all of the ordinary things that people are going to be doing. None of those people are going to be hanging out on telegram channels, uh, and, and discords, uh, to like pick a, to aggregate demand they're going to be like this is the app this is the app that does the great job does it, like does this really well I use it I believe in that I like that's where my relationship is I'm at this app player. Um and so that's that's the thesis it's like we, we are we continue to be sort of a little bit modeling the future of cryptocurrency based on and like the future of our space based on the users of today who are not really representative of what the future user looks like
1: I think that's fair. And how much of that do you think is, you know, I guess the difference between, I think maybe another analogy is like an L1 is sort of like, you know, an app, you know, Apple's app store, right. Or, or windows, right. in that it's a marketplace for supply and demand of developers supply of block space. Um, And, you know, it gives them the ability to rent seek throughout that entire, you know, I guess value chain and squeeze on both sides. Um, Versus other platforms are really owning that user, user relationship, right? Like Uber, Google, you know, they are they are the the touch point of the user. Um, and so I think, are we? Do you would you agree that you're seeing something where you know, as as apps actually start to gain more leverage and traction on these general purpose L ones, that's that's part of the friction here or the tension, right? To maybe move to, at least to their own app chain. Or get closer to the user and be able to you know extract more of that value versus the l1 um is that a fair analogy you would say that where this is all going is is really also the app's motivation to get closer to the user and control more of that value stack
3: i think it depends on where you're starting um so if you're starting out as as uniswap um, you have a great relationship to the user and you're trying to like Expand the addressable market into to other chains. Um, if you are starting out as Osmosis and you're you have an L1 like uh, they have expanded into kind of adjacent categories because they want to. Um, I mean, one there's a smaller user base that they they have access to at the moment, so they, they kind of want um, to get access to users that way. Um, so that question of like um you know what move you make uh, and and how that kind of impacts your your decision about you know your architectural decision about the application and you know wh- whether you're going to be um, doing kind of further vert- vertical integration it really is highly dependent on on you know where your beachhead is i think
0: that beachhead sort of point is is i think a good one sam and Maybe, I mean, there's a lot of work that gets done in traditional businesses of sort of mapping like a customer journey, right? Um, And again, to borrow sort of this uh, sort of helpful analogy, at least for for me to understand this within the context of kind of aggregation theory and and where value gets captured, you know, Ben has basically used this analogy to describe how people consume information, right? So, you know, in olden kind of times when you were trying to read the news, you'd go right to the newspaper but in event and then there's sort of like a value chain of people that actually produce content and then there's sort of this um you know the there are publishers but now with the advent of these aggregators in the form of like social media people actually first go to like twitter or facebook or wherever you get your news and that's why there's a tendency to sort of bypass the the middle step for um you know which is publishers and that's why traditional publishers are sort of struggling so when we think about uh, that sort of customer journey for crypto, I'd be curious to see, are there any like opportunities and what what is an aggregator maybe look like in the in the future end state for crypto? Maybe it's like a wallet is kind of the most obvious thing that comes to mind. Uh, Sunny made the observation in the last episode that people aren't users of Ethereum, they're users of, of MetaMask. So I'd be curious, like, do you guys view wallets as being potentials for, for aggregators or like, are there other apps or like what is that sort of uh, eventual journey for people into crypto look like and who has the value capture?
3: To Take a kind of sober look at this like 99% of applications right now are are like day trading investment applications. Um, it's all like financial rails. So of, of that single category um, wallets and and potentially, kind of like an integrated DAP experience. Yeah, absolutely, that, that makes makes sense to me. Um, I I think if we're like really successful here, we're going to be entering into different markets, and and you know we might kind of white label some of this infrastructure for for other use cases, or or kind of deploy uh, you know separate instances that that really help us do non-financial use cases. The Finance, finance is just the back end. So um, what the what owning the customer means in that context, I, I think, is, um, you know, to be written. Zachy,
0: exactly. exactly. I don't know if, if if you have thoughts there about just, like, potential, maybe even looking at it today. I mean, even if we just look examined the, you know, financial use case or, or what crypto looks like today, I mean, you could even view decentralized exchanges, right, as a potential aggregator like if you think about that customer journey people will you know first engage with crypto you know via um you know trading on a dex although i guess the wallet even comes before that but you know i guess Jackie, any any thoughts to build on on what what sam said in terms of potential aggregators today or even just apps that own sort of the customer relationship or the consumer relationship
2: i mean i think like one of the things that has um sort of been most interesting to see right is you, so you see both NFT marketplaces and sort of token marketplaces having been remarkably sticky, you know, the, uh, you know, the numbers that you see are like, you know, three, I I think, I, I think there was a Blockworks piece that came out recently that was like 3 million of the like you know, uh, you know, very large, which is a total, very large percentage of the total install base of MetaVas are essentially just OpenSea users. Right. Um, and then after you go from, uh, the, the, you know, just OpenSea users, there's a lot, of, there's, you know, it's, you know, I, I remember, you know, I have no idea if this number is still tr- is true and like what the actual number is, but I remember something like, uh, maybe a year ago, someone saying that 40% of the, uh, traffic to the Uniswap protocol is sourced from the Uniswap front end, right? Um, in spite of the fact that there are alternate protocols inside of the fact that you almost always get a better price from something like one inch, you know, you, you still have this like sticky, uh, connection to users. Um, and I think we see this in, in honestly in Cosmos as well, like with Osmosis, like, you know, the Cosmos community is there. Um, that, that is where, you know, and there are, there are numerous other DEXs in the Cosmos ecosystem today. Um, but the sticky aggregation place for, uh, user demand in, in the Cosmos ecosystem continues to be Osmo.
1: Does that really come from an early focus on, on supply of liquidity? And, and I, I guess that is really, when we think about, you know, both sides of the marketplace, what's more important in the long run, um, you know, I think it's very interesting to look at Osmosis and how they were able to bootstrap themselves by, you know, using a lot
2: of incentives, frankly. Um,
1: and we're starting to come down on that, right?
2: Yeah, uh, but they built yeah, a Skinner box is what they actually, like, I think, like, what the most, uh, what the thing that Osmosis did that what, has. What is
0: that, Zaki? Sorry. What is a, yeah, a Skinner box? So
2: a Skinner box is a system of, like, very predictable reward. So, like, you push a button, you you get the re- you, you, you get the reward. Right. Um, and the, um, and the question becomes, you know, you are, uh, you are doing the, you are doing this, the, the, um, you're doing this question of, you know, what is this, you know, what is the Skinner box in this scenario? Um, and the, um, and the, uh, the question then becomes, you know, you are, um, uh, so like, you know, uh, what Osmosis built was this, you know, every, every day at, you know, uh, at the epoch time, you know, they distributed a bunch of, of, of LPing rewards um, and then people needed to, and, you know, so there was this like long period of time of like really like of like daily engagement with the Osmosis protocol. Um, among a large population of, of, of early Cosmos people. And I think that was probably the thing um, that, built the, uh, uh, that built that user base. And I think the, the, other, the other thing that I think has been successful about these exchanges, right, is probably more than any other application in crypto. It's like, it has, you know, it onboard, you know, the users built a model of like what a centralized exchange was. And then we eventually built DEXs that fit that model well enough that people were like, okay, I get what this is too. Like, And so that that conceptual understanding of what it is that you're interacting with, I think has been a very powerful feature of these systems.
0: It is an interesting observation because, you know, if you're a builder in, in crypto, you, you definitely have to think there's a little bit of a, you know, and I think Cosmos, frankly, is like way ahead of the curve in terms of ecosystems, in terms of like, how can I build... The best product, but I think a lot of founders also think of where they're building in terms of L1 ecosystems as distribution as well. And right now, Ethereum has the most the most users, right? As an L1, but it's a very interesting observation to make. I think, at least to me, that maybe there, there's less lock in on kind of the L1 ecosystem if you look at it over time, right? Like users initially, like Bitcoin was the first kind of. Uh, you know, software, you know, ecosystem that attracted the initial developers. And obviously that's not necessarily the case anymore. And, you know, today Ethereum is kind of the the juggernaut, but ulti- like Cosmos and, uh, you know, Solana and other L1s have attracted a lot of developers over time. And really some of the stickiest relationships are actually like like MetaMask or Coinbase or, you know, potentially OpenSea. So it's just a very interesting uh, observation as to where, you know, which apps like might be sticky in a crypto environment, because it's hard to predict. Ultimately, it's still pretty early days for that. Um, I, I guess, you know, just uh, uh, to, to, to wrap up this sort of line of, of thinking, I'd be curious, you know, there are some, when you look at some of the stickiest Web2 products, especially the, the sort of marketplace products, um, it's kind of hard to tease out you know how much is aggregating demand versus aggregating supply. Obviously, you have to when you're bootstrapping those two-sided marketplaces, you need both to happen at the same time, right? So, like Amazon with their sort of network of of merchants, right? Or Airbnb with its network of hosts and suppliers, or Uber with its you know with its drivers, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, I'd I'd be curious, uh, you know, do do you how do you see those moats sort of playing out in crypto? Like when you look, crypto is a little bit of like an open source, like lowering, switching costs uh, type environment, like how do you guys, have you seen any outside of like the exchanges that we've talked about, uh, have you seen any examples of successful moats uh, in crypto around aggregating demand or what do you think that might look like in in a crypto environment as opposed to Web2?
3: I think it's worth mentioning that the the bootstrapping phase is like pretty different from, from the kind of like maintenance phase. Um, there's... I mean, my, I'm sure you had a similar experience. Like the first time you used Uniswap, like there wasn't really a comparable experience. You were kind of just playing with it. It was kind of the only place to get random coins in 2017. Um, so you were pretty insensitive to anything but just any supply whatsoever being there. Um, that looks... Pretty different today where i think that they have like a very strong customer relationship and 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 very strong brand that <laughs> allows them to to be more kind of mobile across different different chains different lts um, and so they they've carried their their customer relationships so that you know wherever they go um, yeah so um The the moat, I mean, kind of building the moat is, you know, an accretive process that that happens over a long time. And, um, I think it starts with like, you know, getting, (laughs) building the Skinner box box early, I guess. And then, uh, and then, um, kind of building some kind of liquidity flywheel or trust flywheel that that allows you to, to kind of retain users.
2: Um... Yeah, I mean, I think that there there are relatively few moat like applications with moats uh, in uh, cryptocurrency, which goes back to the general reality, which is that there are very few applications with like users in cryptocurrency. Um, like the applicate, you know, you know, the application layer has is continued to lag behind uh uh all of the other like hype and bits and pieces and, and 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 things going on in the in the crypto ecosystem right um and so you know we are um there's like there's there is to my mind a, a, a not really a, a doubt here that the um that like you know one of the like one of the biggest challenges of imagining the future of crypto is that like you know, that at some point, if this whole industry is to succeed, the future has to look a lot less like what, what the present is.
3: Yeah, I mean, today, just the absence of bridges has been a big moat,
1: right? Um,
2: <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah I mean, you... Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Zaki. Well, I mean, I, I would say uh, there have been a variety of things that are, are, have been sources of aggregation of demand at the l1 layer that are breaking down right like uh usdc also has like availability of stable coins and specifically usdc has been a big moat in a lot of ecosystems um but you know with uh cctp you know and like sort of circles vision of kind of usdc everywhere uh that aggregation of demand layer is starting to break down and i think you have you have uh you know, so you ha- and, you know, the the other component has been like that, yes, you know, with the exception of, of Cosmos, most other ecosystems didn't come with any bridging built in. So like once you got exchange, uh, a critical mass of exchanges onboarding onto your platform, you know, you pretty much then that was where everybody stayed. Um, you know, it was hard to, you know, that that, that was an you could aggregate demand from, from on that layer. Um, but like all of those. Those moats are sort of temporary to the immaturity of the industry, rather than uh, a permanent features of the uh, of the of of the system. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, what should own like the only thing that you know, the last you know sixty you know forty year history of consumer computing has told us is that applications are really where people like where where the where where the stickiness occurs, right? You know going back to like the ultimate sticky application like Microsoft Excel.
1: And I think, you know, a lot of the value of L1 is based off of like how differentiated the apps built on top of them are. Um, but I do think that that presents a natural tension, right? Because as those apps become more differentiated, then they're going to want to own, you know, more of the stack and take those users with them. Um, I'm curious how you guys think about block space and and this idea on the on the supply side, right? is block space completely, is it going to be completely commoditized or do you see some merit in this idea of there being like a, a premium block space to say Ethereum L1 that will always, you know, retain a, a large amount of, I guess, market share, you know, in terms of value to the amount of transactions versus other, you know, sort of environments. Um, or is block space just gonna be completely commoditized across the board? Um, and and. Yeah. Uh, How do you think about validating or invalidating that uh, thesis?
3: Love this question. I've been thinking about it a bunch. Um, If you look, yeah, so my opinion is BlockSpace is not a uniform resource. Um, It is, uh, so BlockSpace on osmosis is not the same as like BlockSpace on Ethereum, first of all, obviously. Um, And block to block, like, and even with, you know, inter block or intra block, um, block space is not uniform. So it's a highly context sensitive resource. And um, the main thing that application specific chains are doing is, is basically um, giving you more kind of granular control over the, the shape of the resource in the first place, like what you can do within a block or what you can't do within a block. And how, how the market is structured. So um, who's able to buy, what the auction or, or kind of marketplace looks like. Um, and um, I, I think that there absolutely is some commodity block space. Um, I, and I think particularly for, for kind of time insensitive transactions. So if I'm like sending a payment to my grandmother or something I kinda like don't care if it takes like five minutes to get there, like it'll get there. She's not gonna check for another like ten days. Um
0: better hope your grandma's um, not listening to this, Sam. Just trashing <laughs> her like that. <laughs>
3: uh but there are very it, it, there there are transactions that, that you send that, you know, can get front run or sandwiched and um that's a that's a very different kind of mode of interacting with the, the base resource.
2: So my opinion about the value of block space really comes down to my perception that there is that block space is primarily valued by the accessible network of counterparties in that block space. Um, that like, the reason Ethereum block space is valuable is because of the large number of like, counterparties and integrations and whatnot. But the problem is, but the, rea- but the, the flip side of that is that there is a, there are, there are tipping points in every block, in, in sort of, in, net, in block space or like networks of blockchains um, that where you get to a critical mass of counterparties and then the uh, the advantage uh, erodes dramatically. Um, and so the so I, you know, I think uh, in a lot of the fat protocol sort of thesis that we're here to in you know we're, we're arguing against and we're trying to invalidate here, there's a tendency, you know there's a tendency to, Ethereum block space has the most economic security, therefore uh, it is the most valuable block space and it's this tautology, right? And I think the actual answer is Ethereum has enormous first, you know, has first mover advantage, um, has, you know, deep integrations with lots across, you know, lots of different counterparties is essentially the de facto first integration point for many services um, and therefore gives you, has network effects around that. But the you know the likely future is uh, is is you know a more of an evening out of that where there are other places where like large number of counterparties are willing to are available and engaged in a system allowing them to um, and so you know how does that translate into the like future value of of you know the future aggregation of demand and the future aggregation of value on Ethereum L one. I think it's an open question. Uh, uh, it's I'm not trying to be completely down on Ethereum. I'm just saying that it's a bit of an open question.
3: Uniswap is is the largest consumer of Ethereum block space. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's you know it's pretty significant. Um, I think OpenSea is like number two or something like that. Um, and if Ethereum is exp- or, or sorry, if Uniswap is expanding into layer twos and other chains, and likewise OpenSea is doing the same, like, is like, should Ethereum be worried about the value of its block space being eroded because the amount that you pay for a layer two transaction is like, you know, fractions of what, what you might pay for a, an L1 settlement? Um, it, I mean, those are questions that. As, as an app chain uh, developer, like you start to ask yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I mean, I think number of counterparties and, and integrations is, is one kind of, you know, lens to look at this. And I think maybe something more lasting, you know, for Ethereum L1 is that maybe there will always be some class of transactions that are just so important, right, that people will not trust any sort, anything other than Ethereum L1. Um, but on the other side of the spectrum you know that that to me i could see as being very high value but on the other side of the spectrum i think sam you were alluding to it is being able to really optimize the block space for your application uh both in terms of you know ux benefits and value capture wherever you think about like mev that's where it gets into this sort of stuff um yeah I, I don't i don't know if you know what what the opportunity is for something that's in the middle of that but you know i think in general that's where i I see the most value in, in terms of the block space,
0: guys. I've I've got a um, uh, you know, sort of a concept that I want to introduce to to both you and the listeners as well. Uh, and this is sort of the last uh, analogy we'll we'll borrow from from aggregation theory. But there's a there's a concept that maybe even is actually a little bit adjacent to to aggregation theory. But it's one that uh, sort of describes where value accrues in different supply or value chains. So I'm actually gonna. Uh, share my screen here quickly, so uh, people who are following along via YouTube can actually get a little bit of a visual representation. But the the smiling curve is is a framework that it was it was actually introduced from I think Acer, miles the name of the company. It's a it's a, a Taiwanese company, um, and and it was used to describe kind of the early PC value chain. And the reason why it's a smile is he sort of. Uh, bifurcated into three three different areas, which is the the base part of the value chain, which is kind of RD, right? And pat which is secured by patents and technology. Then there's a middle, which is kind of fabrication. And then there's uh, the part that's closest to the consumer, which is marketing. And that the the lock-in there is kind of brand and service and all that sort of thing. And if you look at where value accrues, the reason it's a smile is because at the very start of the value chain there's a lot of, um, you know, enterprise value that gets created uh, with patents and technology and kind of that R&D that's very hard to do. Then there's a lot of value that gets created around like the brand uh, and service, right? And kind of the consumer lock-in, but it lags in the middle, which is around fabrication, which ultimately ends up being commoditized. And this is an analogy that has been used to describe like a whole bunch of different industries. I'm, I'm wondering if there are places in crypto that this is applicable to because a lot of what we're describing right now like i can sort of see the smile beginning to form like when you think about like app chains or app dedicated block space right which ends up being very valuable because it ends up having like a relationship with the consumer right and there's some kind of brand attachment and stickiness maybe it's at the wallet side maybe it's at the decentralized we don't know exactly yet right there's an end state but we can we sort of see that then maybe there's kind of this premium block block space right uh that it, maybe it's ethereum maybe it's not um but there's you know kind of premium block space here i'm wondering if there's uh like kind of a middle layer to be honest in in a lot of discussions i see about like the the easiest analogy that i see here is like layer twos frankly like generalized layer twos seem like they are highly uh, at risk of being commoditized um but but i'm curious like when you know when we look at that sort of that that smile um, do, does anything stand out uh, in terms of like analyzing sort of crypto value chains or what what do you guys think about that analogy as it as it
2: applies to crypto? you know the ethos of the space is so uh, fixated on uh is so or like one thing that's like very unique compared to the ordinary technology industry is how much of the most R&D-heavy parts of the industry eventually get manifested as open-source um, systems, um, where the, where the, um, where the uh, uh, technology is, um, where there's no IP protection around the technology or very limited IP t- protection around the technology. Or honestly, even if, you know, uh, uh, the, like, you could put years of R&D into something and uh you know once you release it it's pretty common in this industry in crypto that like if you have something that's a sub, sub- substantial innovation people are able to cream room re implement it relatively fast um so like there's a lot because there's like there's no patents in this space there's just copyrights really um and i don't expect you know patents to 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 start playing a major role in this space anytime in the near future so In that world, you know, it's like basically all you're doing with your, you know, there's this weird feedback cycle where what you're earning with your like very intensive computer science R&D is essentially like a marketing and a brand position. And then the thing that like is the monetization layer and the distribution layer that you earned with doing a lot of intense R&D is the brand marketing networking layer distribution layer.
3: Um, you already kind of mentioned this, but the, the smiling curve basically defines like where the monopolies are in a traditional business. Um, like patents are you know, intellectual property monopoly and brands a are, are kind of trust monopoly with the user. And the fabrication process in this instance is like, is commoditized. Um, although it's kind of changing with TSMC and, and just the, the kind of unique fabrication capabilities there. Um,
0: that's actually a cool they TSMC really flipped that on its head frankly mm-hmm. that that story but that's a story for another time sorry go Sam totally.
3: Yeah we could talk about that offline Um uh, so I, I completely agree with, with Zaki. um like patents kind of aren't available to you um and uh so the the monopoly on that side if you if you're going to try to kind of retain an R&D monopoly you basically have to have like a sustained organizational like uh, knowledge advantage. Um, So I do think that some of these ZK um, kind of shops that, that have like, you know, have aggregated the best ZK researchers in the space um, could, could potentially have a kind of sustained advantage there. Um, But it's, you're not locked in in the same way, um, uh, it, it, as well as some like you know ASIC hardware and um, and now some of the like ZK ASICs things like that. Um, if you're going to be doing a bunch of research there and and roll out a, a bunch of those kind of um, supply constrained machines, I, I could I could see you potentially getting monopoly. Um, but yeah, the the vectors of competition are just like a little bit different with the the kind of open source mentality.
1: That's interesting because when I when I looked at this graph and I was trying to think about this maps over to to our space. I I honestly thought it, from the seat of a application developer that you know the left side, the R and D side, is something like moving you know DYDX moving to its own app chain because it can build a you know a differentiated product that way um, versus any sort of you know order book decks that is built on a monolithic chain. Um, and the right side, I, I saw more as like Uniswap moving to its own wallet, right? Getting closer and, and finding a new ways to build brand and, and improve their marketing abilities. Um, I guess, do you see in the, in the end game where, you know, these super apps will actually be both, um, you know, or, or potentially you know, if once you move to your own full stack app chain, then you're going to be motivated to build the wallet. Or once you build the wallet, then you'll be motivated to eventually move to your own app space.
3: Well, um, I guess I would say that DYDX already is that in a way. Like the only reason it's able yeah. to move is because they own the customer relationship. Um, right. They have a fantastic brand. They are the the DeFi Perpetuals protocol, and you know, users would not go through that kind of pain if they didn't already have that. Um, that lock-in and like fantastic customer relationship so um i think there's probably again just kind of getting back to like where you're entering into the market like there's probably ways to enter in with like an r d advantage before you know people have kind of understood what's going on I, i think zk is this like there are very few zk researchers until you know a couple of years ago um and if you can get a first mover advantage there you know you can kind of move into more of like a consumer facing um relationship
1: that's great um i guess speaking of of dydx uh, before we came on we were talking about uh you know validation or invalidation signals um of this thesis to you longer term um we we're talking about the importance of DYDX within that context, right? Um, if this works, I think it's a you know a massive validation signal. I'd love to just kind of hear you expand uh, either of you guys uh, on that and and other you know if it's if it's DYDX or if there are other sort of validation invalidation signals that you're really paying attention to.
2: I will say that the DYDX and like I've been working closely with them, um, and many many people in the Cosmos ecosystem have been. Um, Working closely with them Uh, So this is not purely an outsider perspective But it is without any doubt In my mind That what we're doing with DUIDX Will Will either show Like will be either like a tremendous Validation of the app chain Like thesis Or a demonstration that You know the pieces are not in place Um, And The you know because that You know that like we have to succeed, they have to succeed, we have to succeed collectively in taking that and migrating that, you know, a, a very high threshold of their customer relationship, which is currently on a Starkx platform, L2 on Ethereum and migrating them to Cosmos. Um, and, you know, if we're not successful in doing that, you know, uh, it's a huge demonstration of the like, this is a, this is a really like, you know, this is a, a, a problem. Um, on the other hand, one of the other things that I think is most interesting about DYDX is they are legitimately building an app chain. Um, I think a lot of the, uh, decentralized exchanges in Cosmos and a lot of the users of the Cosmos SDK, um, are building what are effectively L1s that benefit from IBC network effects, um, but are not truly app chains. Um. And I think we have a lot of things coming um, in the cosmos ecosystem uh, I, like and I think like it's actually a relatively small population of cosmos chains that have like been going down the app chain route. I think we've been trying to do that with some we are actually been doing that with sommelier. I think that uh, um, that the uh, that the DYDx team by like, you know essentially building a custom mempool building all these pieces uh you know building a thing that serves is basically there to like allow people to have like the centralized exchange scale and order experience on a decentralized order book um yeah or like an order book that like teleports around the world every you know 3 or 4 every 6 seconds or every 5 seconds uh is such a is like an it, it's a, such an amazing vision it's, I think it can be like people, if it works, will blow people's minds about what is possible with an app chain that you're like, no, you can't do this on any L1. No matter how fast the L1 is, um, you can't do this. right? I think it's a, it is genuinely an opportunity to blow people's minds about how easy it was to migrate the customer relationship and, how, uh, uh, and like what is possible in a decentralized setting um, that I don't think has ever been done before. And so I am I do think that like that is our right now I very much our like the ecosystems like and like even the entire app chain thesis is like sort of flagship endeavor right now.
3: Zach and I have both done our fair share of like trying to chill the Cosmos SDK and like the Cosmos stack to people and like you usually where I, the the kind of two things that I um First, first you talk about IBC, <laughs> and, and then you basically talk about um, kind of transaction control uh, at two levels. Like one is the fee model, and the other is within consensus. And um, really just this year, I've been really encouraged to see some extremely um, creative and kind of high-performing teams uh, doing kind of innovating on, on both of those levels, um, and just these are these are things that you can't do with a, a kind of commoditized or or monolithic L one um, applications having complete control over you know, every step of the the kind of mechanism. Um, so that would be um, kind of early validation for me, um, but uh completely agree with with Zaki that um, DOIDX, just in terms of kind of magnitude of liquidity and and the the experience that they're trying to deliver to users um, would be major validation. although one instance I, I don't think is is enough to to really um, uh, to kind of prove out the
1: the thesis. That makes a lot of sense and kind of good segue into my my uh, next question. We talked about this on, on the first episode, but kind of look at this as a as a spectrum from, you know, a full stack app chain like you have with Cosmos uh, app chains to maybe a Celestia Sovereign roll up. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, we have, you know, app specific roll ups on Ethereum. Um, and I think, Sam, you just got into this a little bit, but what what would you point to as, as the real like marginal benefits in terms of customizations that are possible when you own the full stack as a app specific L1, but you know, versus becoming an app specific L2 uh, or an L3, right? Um, I think a lot of people will look at this DYDX move and it's successful and they'll say, all right, was that because they own their own, you know, block space uh, and they have more in, you know, can I does that same benefit map over to an app specific L three, which is maybe cheaper for me? Um, so I'd just love to kind of unpack what you would if you were to you know show the full stack app chain and why why full stack over you know app specific roll up or um, you know both today and and also maybe you know in the future where some things like interoperability are taken care of.
3: To kind of like couch this a little bit, I. I think all these are like valid ways to build an application. Um, I, that is kind of the cosmos ethos is like Ethereum is an app chain. It just like is an app chain that's trying to do lots of things for lots of people. Um, And, but, but I do think that there's a certain class of applications that would, you know, really would benefit from full stack control. Um, I, I think the, the two kind of largest privacy applications are the ones that I've kind of worked with most closely. Penumbra and Enoma are great examples. Like, it's just stuff that you can't really do. And even on an L2, it's very challenging. Um, There's solutions like Aztec, but Aztec has like a 10 minute, like finalization time or something. And Penumbra is building a fully private decks with like, I mean, just the, the, the level of like functionality that the users can have available to them is, is absolutely wild. Um, so, you know, and, and you need the ability to, um, have the consensus mechanism recognize like the fee token and, um, and be able to. You know, validators need to be able to like validate proofs. Um, there's just like a lot that you need to do, in integrating the the execution with, um, you know, with the entire app application experience. Um, the so, um, yeah, and then and then in the middle there is is like modular applications, and I'm I mean I'm definitely like. Bullish Celestia for sure, um, and I, <clears throat> Zach and I have been talking to them for a long time. Um, I think there's an enormous class of applications that you can build on Celestia. There, there is a segment that you cannot, um, and basically, the idea behind um, you know modular modularization is that there are kind of defined boundaries between the different um, uh, kind of utilities. So data availability consensus settlement execution um, and the idea there is you're not supposed to be breaking those boundaries um, or they have kind of all these different names for like you know a, a sovereign roll up versus an enshrined roll up and like like what they're doing there is basically they're they're saying that okay in in this instance you're allowed to to kind of like uh, to Break a single boundary and and uh, have this part of the application interact with with this other part, and um, a, like a fully sovereign um, application is basically says that okay I I need like full stack control over every part of you know, every module because there are optimizations that that require um, you know boundary breaking. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that there's lots of different valid ways to build a, a, an application.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think you know people think about app chains, and often the first thing they think of is vertical integration for higher value capture. But um, you know, what I'm what gets me more excited is more more about the applications that have that wow factor, right? So something that is you know a, a, a differentiated user experience because it's built on a full stack app chain um and i think teasing out some of those you know true differentiated capabilities you know as you go across the spectrum and what you lose as you go across that spectrum is is really what you know we're trying to get a, a, a good sense of this season
0: that's gonna tease into to next episode as well where we really get into the weeds of like what are the different different trade-offs right between these different models and again there's there's no like you know reasoning by analogy is is sort of imperfect by definition but like there are lots of good reasons you know when you look at traditional supply chains of like where to vertically integrate and where it makes sense versus where it doesn't make sense and you've seen examples of companies and supply chains vertically integrating you've seen examples of supply chains uh, intentionally unvertically integrating as well right um to try to give them some relief from uh Uh, you know, different fluctuations in in demand.
3: I I do think that there will be Cosmos applications that like outsource a very specific part of their, you know, their application stack to another entity like like Celestia, for instance, um, in order to to cut costs and kind of focus on their their kind of core business.
2: I also wanted to put one like last little bit into the Mm. whole thing, which is And I don't think we didn't really we haven't really talked about this uh, in the in in this conversation, but I think it's an important thing to cover, which is the basic idea of the minimum viable application specific blockchain stack. Um, And basically, uh, you know, the way that like I kind of uh, 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 view it as is like the minimum viable thing is some way of sequencing or producing blocks some way of bridging in and out of the ecosystem um, and some sort of toolkit that gets you network effects where you can like integrate with like wallets or uh, 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 and like other and like block explorers and stuff like that. you don't have to like essentially create the entire universe for nothing. Um, those that's what I kind of view as the minimum viable uh, stack and the question and like, What you're seeing is, you know, the Cosmos SDK was the first minimum viable, like the Cosmos stack was sort of the first minimum viable application-specific blockchain stack. You are seeing right now the rise of other minimum. And so I don't know that I would say that, like, there's a big difference between, like, I expect there to be big differences between, like, different instances of minimum viable stacks. But what the problem is is that we're still at a point where we can't really point yet to anyone else having a minimal viable stack and like compare and contrast it against the Cosmos. It's a
0: very good point. Very good point, Zach, and, and a great place to end. And guys, uh, Zach and Sam, thank you so much for, this has been a great episode um, where I think we've really dug into the the nuance of some pretty some pretty fascinating topics. And and I think you've given Miles and I some some ideas uh, for that we're going to explore for the rest of the season. So um, guys, if, if folks want to find out more about you or, or follow the work that you do, or, or what's the best way for, for people to to find out more about you both.
3: Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at HXRTS. Um, I'm, I'm around. Uh, also, you know, pretty available in, in DMs if you want to learn more about the Cosmos Um I'm at Z M A N
2: I'm at Z-M-A-N-I-A-N uh, on Twitter. Uh, that's usually the best place to find me still uh, for as long as Twitter stays up.
0: <laughs> oh boy. All right, ending on a dire note there. Guys, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating no, conversation. Fun. Yeah, we'll have to do it again soon. All right, buddy. That was a great, great episode. What do you
1: think? Really enjoyed uh really enjoyed talking to Sam and Zachy. Um I think, you know, we we dove into the weeds quite a bit on the first episode with with Sonny um and Dimitri, and I think, you know, this this balanced it out a little, you know, pretty well by by kind of zooming out a little bit um and thinking about You know how to apply a lot of these concepts to what we see of the forces of traditional companies um, and marketplaces, and you know I think aggregation theory is a great framework to to think about this stuff, Um, and you know is rarely kind of talked about I think in this crypto native space.
0: Well, I think we came into this episode hoping to sort of reorient our our listeners to from this sort of implicit bias maybe towards like from like towards like fat protocols to one to a, a lens of the world where really you know value might accrue to the the kind of app chain you know close proximity to the consumer and then everything below might get commoditized but I, and I think we did that but ultimately I really enjoyed this episode because I think we took a pretty nuanced look at that whole value chain and examined it through the le- like a more traditional lens that you might look at supply chains and exactly those those different forces that that interact on supply chains and you you get so little of that in crypto because there's kind of this you know, for so long, it's been this magical internet money and normal forces of supply and demand don't, uh, you know, necessarily apply, but uh, I think you and I don't, don't have that view, uh, and that you can apply, you know, somewhat traditional frameworks or analytical frameworks to where value is going to accrue to this space. And I think we, we had some pretty fun, uh, you know, yeah. discussions around that in this episode. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I think I totally agree that, that most crypto protocols, um, both applications and, and L1s are marketplaces to some degree, um, you know, matching, matching, uh, supply and demand. And we got into really, I think what is, you know, an observation that I think the focus to date has really been about, uh, controlling the supply side um whereas where we think this is going is is moving towards these apps wanting to control and and really the apps that own the demand side will eventually have the leverage right over the generally these general purpose platforms um and and how that plays out and you know whether they're expanding up into wallets or down into chains you know i think that um teasing out a lot of this stuff has been was very very interesting i think there's been an implicit
0: uh, there's been a bias in crypto towards making supply driven arguments when it comes to investment. And maybe you can trace that to Bitcoin and its hard cap 21 million dollars, uh, 21 million coin supply. And you, you sort of see that barred a little bit. I know you think about this a little differently, but, you know, in ultrasound money, uh, the ETH meme, and there's been an enormous focus towards restricting the supply of ETH. And, you know, frankly, if you look at some of the most compelling outcomes in Web 2, they've been Demand-based stories and controlling yeah. demand as opposed to supply.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think I think speaking about this in the context of block space is really interesting um, because I, yeah, I, I do see you know a future where there could be a, a premium of block space, which I consider to be you know supply on the uh, for say Ethereum L1. Um, but at the same time, you know the apps are going to want to get. Uh, more opinionated and specialized with their own block space, uh, both to improve the product, the user experience, and and also to improve their amount of uh, value accrual. Um, and so I think there's going to be, you know, it's a natural tension that is kind of uh, the motivation for this whole season, right? Um, and, and, yeah.
0: And block space premium is a pretty interesting way of, of framing that. And there's sort of generalized block space, you know, which Ethereum sort of has. And then there's app specific block space which is what we're exploring with app chains and frankly you know i think the jury's still out on which which be- which type of block space accrues a higher premium right you could see there being like ultra premium block space for for decentralized exchanges for instance and maybe that's ultimately because it's specialized and you know that block space you tend to have more granularity and control over fees maybe that ultimately ends up funnily being more more valuable than than any sort of generalized block space we just don't know
1: yeah I I think I I view premium block space more first of all there there will not be more than one I think environment for premium block space and I think about it Mm. more on the on the axes of like security and censorship resistance um and really making no trade-offs right to the benefit of the applications because that's what you're prioritizing um Mm. and I do think that there's probably a space for that but how much of you know the value? How much value that premium block space captures versus the rest of the market, um, and you know how much activity moves to these specialized you know uh, app environments where they can optimize the block space for their use case. Uh, also impacts you know how much of that general purpose ETH L one you know uh, captures um, in terms of the the overall market cap of the space.
0: Yeah, you know. Th- the, the last point that, that uh, you know, I kind of want to make on, on this episode was I, I really agreed with the the po- I forget if Zaki or Sam made this point that we are just so far from sort of the end state of crypto and the vast majority of, of the use case uh, is, is people just doing financial speculation today. So it's you know, I think there's this sort of consensus agreement that this is not ultimately how people are going to be using crypto, but it's very difficult to get a line of sight. To what that end state does look like because we're we're a little ways off from that yeah. right now
1: Oh uh, no i totally agree um and you know say we were in a world where there was thousands of applications decentralized applications that that are used by billions of users um you know i think i think at that point it does you can see like in an obvious aggregator in terms of a, something like a super wallet right that is basically in the same way that search helps people sift through the internet and basically go from intent to action faster, right? You could see a wallet kind of doing the same thing, but today there's just not enough valuable activity to aggregate. Um, and so, you know, I think there's still a lot of, a lot of green space there, both, you know, at the application level, um, and, and maybe the applications become their own wallets. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, we are still so so extremely early and and it's hard for an aggregator to exist when you're this early
0: 100 percent. you know the the aggregate the the wallet idea is an interesting one because you and i sort of went into this episode thinking if there was something that looked like a web 2 aggregator in web 3 or crypto it's probably wallets J- you know jason's been talking a lot and he did an episode in, on empire about uh wallet wars and yeah. it, it's just funny because a, you can go all the way back. People were talking about the wallet wars in 2017 or 2016. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you can actually find threads on Twitter. And on the one hand, you haven't really seen that play out. Uh, like a lot right. of people thought that wallets were going to be more important than they are. On the other hand, you look at something like MetaMask and it has early indications of it being sticky for no offense to MetaMask being, there are a lot of flaws with the product, I would say. Like nothing, <laughs> nothing. you know, like a, it definitely could be improved on. And yet it's still tends to be a very sticky thing that like I'm the same way, like MetaMask was my first wallet and I use it, you know, primarily for the vast majority of what I do.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. And that's why I think that, you know, differentiating in terms of a general purpose wallet hasn't really been able to, you know, unseat MetaMask, but the real like signal will be the success of Uniswap wallet and OpenSea wallet, right? If some large percentage of all metamask transactions are attributed to those applications. And then those applications build their own wallet, right? That, that will be a a big signal, um, to see just how much, how many of those users migrate right to the apps that they're using most, um, and the the wallets for those apps. Right. In the same way that I think DYDX is also a, a big, you know, uh, validation or invalidation signal, um, and we we knew
0: DYDX was a big deal going into this this season. It's it's it, it was interesting yeah. to hear from from Zachy and Sam just about how much of a uh, a bellwether or an indicate forward looking indicator yeah. this is for sort of the whole app chain thesis. So uh, no pressure, Antonio. Uh, <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all counting on you.
0: Got the hopes of a whole sector and idea riding on you, buddy. So uh, yeah. Good luck, Miles. You want, you want to talk a little bit? You know, we we started to get into the the very last portion of the discussion about sort of trade offs between a full stack monolithic app chain versus one that's more modular, sort of the Celestia model, via versus one that's sort of built on Ethereum. We were kind of getting into that uh, design space uh, difference, and that, that's that's what we're going to be focusing on primarily in the next episode. I don't know if you want to tease it a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you know, as I've said before, that's really kind of digging into um, the differences in terms of what you can do with the product, uh, what you can get in terms of value accrual between a full stack app chain uh, to a modular, you know, app specific rollup uh, to an app specific rollup on Ethereum, either L2 or L3. That's one of the biggest questions for me in this show. And I think that, you know, Zaki, I, I liked his framework that he used around, you know, a minimum viable stack, right? And, and so far we have only seen, you know, apps in action that are using the Cosmos, uh, stack, but soon we'll see, you know, a, a basically a stack emerge on the modular side. Um, and we're seeing lots more, I would say roll up stacks emerge on the Ethereum side, whether it's bedrock from optimism or slush that's, you know, doing, uh, building a, an SDK for, for, um, Starknet, um, rollups. And just, you know, kind of mapping what the benefits are from the Cosmos SDK full stack, uh, to those other minimum viable stacks and seeing just how many, you know, you can bring with you. Um, because frankly, like it, the Cosmos full stack is expensive and it, it is risky. Um, and we don't have a lot to compare it to yet. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk to some folks on the next, on the next, next episode who are in a great position to kind of dive into that and i'm really excited it's it you know it's expensive and it's risky and it's
0: it's hard you know sam kind of made this point right at the end of that last episode of of you might actually see some some chains that started out trying to be full stack you know monolithic app chains they might actually say hey you know if you've got you know kind of execution and product and then there's like all these things that need to happen underneath settlement data availability consensus maybe we don't really want to do all that because like bootstrapping a network of validators is not what we do really well we want to just focus on that that top app chain and lots of examples of this again in traditional supply chains of like just wanting to focus on the one area that you want to play and you have a competence and you'll outperform so um it'll be interesting to see if we uh, unverticalize or un- uh, un- un-
1: un- unbundle the unbundle unbundle right?
0: thank you very much
1: yeah I think I think it'll be interesting to see how much of the you know the, the stack is unbundled and and also I think which uh, Zaki got into is how how much horizontal expansion will app chains you know be able to accomplish without you know, I guess dealing with scope creep and, and really deteriorating, you know, the UX of the core product. Um, like we're seeing a lot of sector specific, you know, app environments or app chains now. Um, so yeah, I think, I think lots more to, lots more to come on this season, but, um, next one should be a great one too.
0: Agreed buddy. All right. I'll see you for that episode.
1: Sounds good. See ya.